0: Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now enjoy the message. This is a special night. This weekend we ponder and we celebrate. The most important, the most mysterious the most beautiful events in all of history. And so it's good for us to be together as a church family on a night like this. I'm especially thankful that the kids of our church are with us today. Normally, our first through fifth graders are on the other side of the building. They're in Kids World. They're having a great time there, but on special occasions, like tonight, like on Christmas Eve, we bring them into the service so that they can Celebrate and remember with us. And so it's really special, kids. We're so, so glad that you're here. We're glad that you get to be a part of a really special night. We're your church, and this is not your, just your parents' church. This is not just the adults' church. This is your church too. And we're so glad that you're a part of the church family. I wanna let you know, as we tell the story tonight, I believe that God speaks to kids. God loves kids. So if at any point you feel like sad, Or you wonder at something. Or you're confused and you you think, what does that mean? Or you feel like God is very close to you. I just want to let you know that that's what's going on with all the adults too. We're right along with you. You're joining in us because I think God speaks to adults and speaks to kids. And so we're really glad that you get to be a part of tonight with us. Can we thank the kids for being with us? Tell them how much we love them. Well, let me begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we're gonna open up your word tonight, and we want to see your Son. We always do, God. We want to know more of Jesus. And tonight, we're gonna tell a story that many of us are familiar with. It's a story we tell again and again. So, God, we pray that you would make it fresh in our hearts, that you would bring new things out of it. You would open up our eyes to see even more of your love and your goodness in this story. We pray that you would do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine that you are Moses. You're standing before the burning bush. You can hardly believe your senses. You see the flames rising and you hear the crackle of the fire. You can feel the heat on your skin, but you look and you see that the bush is not being consumed, it's not burning up. At first you were just curious, but now you're kind of afraid because not only is the bush not burning up, it's also talking to you now. Apparently the bush knows your name. You never introduced yourself, but it called out, Moses, Moses. When you realized that God was speaking to you, you said, here I am. And God began to tell you his plans, his plans to rescue his people, his plan to use you to do it. And as you heard him tell the story of what he would do, a question came into your mind. You wondered, what will the people say if I go to them? They're they're gonna ask, what God sent you to me? And I don't know what to tell them. And so you ask God for his name. The minute the question is out of your mouth, you realize, oh, what was I thinking? You're kicking yourself. There's no way he would answer that for me. There's no way that I'm gonna be on a first name basis with the maker of the universe. What am I thinking? That was so dumb. And as you're kicking yourself, you hear his voice rumble. I am who I am. Say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. Yahweh, I am the very name of God. It's a holy moment. It's the moment when you and through you, God's people, are introduced to the one who always was and always is and always will be. It's the moment when the eternal uncreated one introduces himself to you and now you know his name, I am. What would it have been like to be there in that moment? How do you think Moses was feeling as he heard that? It's an incredible revelation of God. And Moses, throughout the rest of his life, is gonna learn so much more about God. He's gonna see him in the Red Sea and meet him up on the mountain and go and talk with him in the tabernacle. But as much as Moses experiences of God, there is still something about him that remains hidden. At one point, Moses actually says to God, can I see your glory? Can I see what you're like? And God says, no, I I can't do that for you. He uses this metaphor. He says, I can show you my back, but I cannot show you my face. We continue that way all throughout Israel's history. For every prophet caught up into the heavenly council, every priest going into the Holy of Holies, every pillar of fire, every voice from above, even so, something was not yet revealed about God. That's why when we get to the start of the book of John, he says this, no one has ever seen God. Have you ever wondered about that? That if you saw God, what would it be like? What would you see? What would be the expression in his eyes? What would be the look on his face? How would he look at you? God spoke his name to Moses, but he did not show him his face. If you've been around Christ community the last six weeks, you know we've been in a series where we've been talking about the things that Jesus actually said about himself. Throughout the book of John, he makes these seven statements. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. We're gonna talk about the seventh one of those at Easter. But as Jesus said these statements, people picked up that rhythm, I am, I am, I am, and they put it together what he was actually saying. He was making an incredible claim about himself. He was using the divine name to speak about who he was. Eventually, Jesus just came out and said it. He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's a bold claim if you think about it. You can't just sort of let that one slide by. You gotta respond to it, don't you? I mean, kids, think about this, all right? I want you to help me out with this, all right? Think, you, I want you to show me with your face. Adults, you can do this too if you want, but kids, I want you to show me with your face and your body language how you would respond if another kid came up to you, like your brother, your sister, a friend at school came up to you and said, I'm God. I made everything. I made you, and I'm in charge. What would you do? Yeah, that's right. Just, yeah, come on what? Oh my goodness. That's what, exactly. You wouldn't just, you'd be like, come on, man, quit joking around. And then if they were like, no, but really I am God. You'd be like, uh, hey, do I need to like call a teacher or something? Cause this is getting kind of crazy here. Cause someone who actually thinks they're God, that, that that's a problem, right? Something's not right with them. And if they know they're not God, but they still try to convince people that they're God, that person's not a good person. They're trying to control other people, get them to do what they say. If someone claims to be God, they are either joking with you, they're crazy, or they're evil. Or they are who they say they are. Some of you are here, and you think about Jesus, and you think, you know what? I think Jesus is a great guy. I really respect him. You wouldn't, probably wouldn't be at a good Friday service if you didn't at least admire Jesus, think that he had some good things to say, someone who is admirable, but there are some of you who say, you know, that's it. I, I'm not really sure what I think about the whole God thing. I'm a little skeptical of that. I'm not sure I want him to be in charge of my life. But he's, he's a wise teacher, good example. That's great. But Jesus actually thought he was God. And if you met someone like that, you'd have to decide. What do you think about Jesus? Is he crazy? Is he evil? Or do you need to bow your knee to him? Well, let's say it's true. He is God. What would that mean? It would mean this. If you want to know what God is like, you got to look at Jesus. you want to know what God is like, you got to look at Jesus. God is still mysterious. There are still things beyond our comprehension. But now, in Jesus, he's no longer hiding. We don't just know God's name. We don't just hear God's voice. When Jesus arrived, God showed us his face. Now, at this point, I've been talking for a while, and some of you are like, when is he going to get to the cross thing? Like, doesn't he know what day this is? He's talking about Moses or whatever. Let me make the connection here. In the book of John, there is one final I am statement. After he makes all of those statements, he finally makes a final one, and it's the night that he dies. And that's, that's what I wanna show you. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 18. Let me set the scene for you. It's the last night of Jesus's life. He's just eaten his final meal with his disciples. Uh, he's loved them, he's served them, he's taught them, and now they've gone to an olive grove, a nearby olive grove, to pray. And as they're in this olive grove, some soldiers are about to come. And I want, I'm gonna read the scene when this happens and I want you to imagine it. And remember, this is not a modern city, so there were no you know, buildings with lights on, there were no streetlights, so it's very dark. But I want you to imagine the sounds, I want you to imagine the sights that you would have seen if you were there. John 18, verse one. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Let's thank God. This is the word of the Lord thanks be to God. Now, did you notice the I am statement in here? It might have just passed by really quickly for you. It actually happened twice. Look in verses four and five. There's this sequence. Jesus says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Again, in seven and eight, he says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I told you, I am he. Now that might not sound like much of an I am statement there. He's just sort of saying, here I am. But in the original language, it does not say, I am he. It just says, I am. Jesus is clearly using the divine name here. In fact, the entire exchange comes across like Jesus is correcting the soldiers. Sort of like if you've ever met someone and you called them, you know, Dr. So or Mr. So and so or Mrs. So and so, and they're like, that's Dr. So and so to you. Like that's what he's doing. He's like, uh, we're, we're looking for a Jesus of Nazareth. And he's like, actually, that's I am as in great I am. It's a a power move right there. And I don't think it's random that Jesus does this at this moment in the story, that this is where John has this final I am statement that he tells about. It happens here for a reason. This is where everything culminates. It's the climactic, definitive revelation where Jesus says, all right, let me peel back the curtain. Let me show you what God is actually like. This moment here is holy ground. It's a burning bush kind of moment. When you wonder what God is like, look at Jesus, but especially look at what's about to happen next. Because this, this will tell you better than anything what God is actually like. Let me dig into it a little bit. First thing to notice is this. Jesus is in complete control of the situation. A bunch of details point at this. Look at verse 4. It says Jesus was, knew all that was going to happen to him. He knew all that was going to happen to him. There was nothing that took him off guard here. There was no alarms, no surprises. He knew what was coming. Also notice that Jesus is the one who initiates the conversation. The guards don't have to look everywhere in the garden. Jesus just walks out and says, what are you up to, guys? He starts the conversation. You'll also notice there's a subtle little detail, but all throughout the story, Jesus does almost all of the talking, and the only time someone else talks is to say his name. He is clearly the alpha in this conversation. And then in verse 6, we've got this strange detail. It says, Jesus, when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back. The guards, the soldiers, fell to the ground. Now, Bible scholars kind of debate exactly what's going on here. They say, well, what were the soldiers actually thinking or doing? Some of them say, you know, is a group of devout Jews, and so they probably heard the divine name and sort of stepped back in reverence. Like, well, what's he saying? Or maybe the soldiers had heard the rumors that John talks about, that people were saying Jesus had demonic powers. He could cast curses on people. And so they're thinking, oh, no, what's he doing? We're going to get away from this. Or maybe they just sort of tripped over each other, and they're just stumbling. It's kind of a comedic little detail there. Or maybe it's simply that supernatural power came out of Jesus and overwhelmed them. Whatever happened, it's clear what it means. It reminds me of this story from the Old Testament. It's kind of a strange one. It's a story about the Philistines who attack Israel. They, they take the Ark of the Covenant captive. The Ark of the Covenant is kind of like the throne of God that sat in the tabernacle. It's a symbol of God's presence. And they capture it and they take it and they're feeling great about themselves. They're thinking, we just, we just, our God just beat this God. And so they take the Ark of the Covenant and they place it in the temple of their God, Dagon. They set it up right in front of the statue of Dagon they go away and come back in the morning they're thinking oh we're doing so great And when they show up in the temple the statue of Dagon is face first on the ground in front of the ark they're a little weirded out so they set it back up go go home and come back the next morning and Dagon's on the ground again hands cut off arms cut off and the Philistines realize that it doesn't matter that you're the ones carrying the swords. It doesn't matter that it looks like you're the one who's victorious. Always, always the God of Israel is in control. So it's not, it's not clear what was going through the guards' minds as they fell down, but it is obvious what it means. It means that if Jesus wanted to, at any moment, he could stop this entire thing. He could make them fall down on their faces. He could summon the armies of heaven. He could call down fire. He could speak a word and they would cease to exist. Like, you know when your mom says, I brought you into this world and I could take you out? Like for Jesus, it's actually true. He could do that. <laughs> Jesus is the great I am. He can do whatever he wants. He, he, no one is forcing his hand at this moment. Whatever happens next in the story is completely his decision. And that's very, very important to understand. Because if there is even a hint, a hint that he was being forced to make this decision, you might doubt that he actually meant it think of it this way you go over to someone's house they make you this meal and you eat it and it is delicious it's amazing you're you're just you're just savoring every bite what do you say to your host thank you so much this is amazing wow this is incredible could I get the recipe for this so good let's say you go to someone else's house and they make you something that's not quite as delicious okay you're having a hard time choking it down what do you say in that situation mmm, wow, this is, this is good, this is good. Can I get the recipe? Like, you say the exact same thing, because when you're the guest, you're not allowed to speak honestly about your opinion about the food. You're not free to just sort of say that. Unless you're allergic, you cannot complain about the food. That's just how it goes. Another example. When I preach, when I get done, every time my mother comes up to me and gives me a hug, and you know what she tells me? Well, that was disappointing, No, she doesn't say that at all. She's my mom. She says, that was wonderful. Such a good sermon. I loved it so much. Now, here's the thing. I don't think she's lying to me when she says that. But how would I ever know? She's my mom. She has to say that. She has to say that. When someone is not free to say or do something other than what they're doing, it's hard to know if they actually mean it. They they might. They might. But you can still doubt it. You don't know for sure. But when you know that they could have done something else and they still chose to do what they did, then you know that it came from here, that they meant it. This is from them. And so what Jesus does next, that's that's why it makes this so amazing. Verse eight tells us, uh, Jesus tells the guards, if you're looking for me, let these men go. Jesus just turns himself in. Now, I can't imagine what the guards are thinking at this point. They're, like, dusting themselves off. They're, like, we just got knocked down, and now he's turning himself in. And they're sort of, like, tying him in ropes. And the image that comes to mind for me is in the movie Man of Steel. Like, when Superman turns himself in, he's, like, yeah, I'm going to let them arrest me. And they, like, start marching around with armed guards. But the guy's bulletproof, so it doesn't really matter that they have guns. And they put him in a room with like a one-way mirror, but he's got x-ray vision, so who cares? And they they cuff him, but it's like he can bend steel. So really, what's the point? Like Superman is only bound when he chooses to be bound. Jesus is only bound when he chooses to be bound, but he chooses to let them lead him away. You gotta understand, when Jesus could choose anything, he chose to die in your place. When he could have chosen to do anything, he chose to die in your place. Now, he could have done what Peter did. Peter sees Jesus level these guards and he's feeling pretty brave. So he's like, all right, here we go. And he gets out his sword. He takes a swing at a guy. Of course, he misses and just sort of gets his ear. Jesus comes along. He's like, stop, Peter. The other gospels tell us that he just immediately healed his ear. Jesus could have gone that route. He could have fought back. He could have defended himself. I mean that's the normal way things work. Even the good guys do that. They fight back. They say no, this is what's right. Back in the 90s, there was a uh, a parody on Mad TV, the sketch comedy parody of the Terminator movies. Now I promise this is going somewhere. All right, you're like very nervous, like Terminator Mad TV. Okay, there was this sketch comedy on uh, about the Terminator, and they decided they would send the Terminator back in time to protect Jesus. So Terminator shows up just after Christmas morning, goes to Bethlehem. But it turns out, you know, Mary and Joseph, they've already left. They've gone to Nazareth. And so, of course, the Terminator says, hasta la vista, baby Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, Okay. So the Terminator, as (laughs) Jesus grows up, follows him around. He's carrying a shotgun. And everywhere there's a threat, he's trying to take out the threat. At one point, Jesus is given the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, blessed are the peacemakers. And the Terminator interrupts by, you know, shooting a couple of Roman soldiers, and you're like, oh, and the whole time, Jesus is protesting. He's like, no, this is not the way. This is not how it's supposed to be done. What are you doing? He keeps shooting Judas. He's like, he's going to kill you. And Jesus keeps raising him from the dead. Like, no, this is the plan. (laughs) Of course, when Jesus finally goes to the cross to die, the Terminator is there comforting all the people who are crying, saying, don't worry, he'll be back. (laughs) Now, this is obviously a parody. The thing about this is that it actually puts a nice contrast between what people normally do and what Jesus actually did. Like, we tell stories about heroes who the way they won was they they fought back in self-defense. They used force. They took control. They asserted their authority. And Jesus could have done that. He had the power to wipe out his enemies right there. But he chose a different path. Back when Jesus was talking about how he was the good shepherd, he said something in addition to that. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus didn't have to do this, but he chose to lay down his life so that you could go free. And Jesus knew exactly what this would cost him. Look at verse 11 here. Just after he tells Peter to put away his sword, he says this, shall I not drink the cup my father has given to me? Shall I not drink the cup? What cup is he talking about? It's the cup of punishment. In the Old Testament, when the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they talked about God punishing sin, they used this image of a cup filled up to the brim. The cup would be handed to whoever was in trouble and they would drink it down, that nation, that person. And the image there was that, that God's wrath, God's anger had been poured into that cup and now that person who had done evil was going to experience all of the consequences, all of the effects, all of the, the penalty for participating in that evil. And so this is how Jesus saw the cross. He said, this cross is a cup. It's a punishment for sin. It's an expression of God's anger against evil. And that idea of God being angry, I don't know about you, but it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. It's very weird. I don't like to think about God that way. But I think I actually would be more uncomfortable if God wasn't angry at sin. I mean, think about it. What would it mean if God looked at murder or abuse or the exploitation of the poor and it didn't bother him? It didn't make him angry. He wouldn't be very good if he did that even things that seem less severe, the, the ordinary day-to-day sorts of things, those, those are the things. Think about how much damage is done from just the cumulative effect of our, our, our greed and our bitterness, our apathy and our deceit, our prejudice and our arrogance. It's the stuff that we do all the time. They don't seem heinous to us in the individual moment, but all of it together, it's as much as the big stuff. It's what's ruining the world. That's what's wrong with this place. Why why should God actually be okay with that? How could God look at anything that harms people, the people that he loves, or breaks the world that he made, and say, yeah, I'm fine with that? How could he not be angry about that? If he's not loving enough to get mad at sin, then he's not actually very loving. Now, the confusing thing about this is that Jesus has not actually done any of that stuff. He's not actually committed sin. He's not rebelled against God. The opposite, in fact. Instead of poisoning the world with his life, he brought healing. Instead of adding to the darkness, he brought the light. Jesus never did anything that aroused the anger of God. So why? Why would he drink from the cup of punishment? And if God has poured a cup of punishment, who is it that actually made him angry? I think we actually know the answer to that question, don't we? I think the thing that makes us uncomfortable about God being angry is not that he would be angry at sin, but the thought that he might actually be angry at us. That we want God to rid the world of evil until we realize that evil lives in us too. Murder and adultery and theft are not things that just live out there, they also live in here, whether in action or in the form of hate and lust and envy. And I'll just tell you this, when I stop comparing myself to other people and I compare myself to what God actually wants for my life, I can't pretend anymore that I'm one of the good guys. I might be able to hide it, but I know I'm part of the problem. If I'm honest, I know I am one of the steady, slow leaks of selfishness that is turning the world toxic. I don't blame God for being angry at me. I deserve to be punished. That cup is my cup. So why is Jesus drinking it? He's the righteous judge. He could just hand that cup to one of his enemies. He he could pour out the wrath on the soldiers and Judas and the religious leaders and you and me. We would deserve that, but not him. Why would he choose to drink it? So that we could go free. Remember what he said. He said, let these men go. He's not just talking about his disciples. He's talking about all of his followers. He's saying, if you're here for me, take me, but let them go. Let her go, let him go, let you go. And as his disciples, as his followers go free, he goes to drink the cup. He experiences the full consequences for sin. I mean, think about what he goes through just in the next evening before he dies. An injustice of a rigged trial, total, total sham of a trial. He experiences the corruption of religious leaders and political leaders. He feels the sting of betrayal. The abandonment of his friends, the people who should have been there in his moment of need, they're gone. He experiences the humiliation of being stripped naked, spat upon, mocked by every person who passed by. He experiences the physical agony of being whipped, of the crown of thorns, of carrying a crossbeam through the road, the painful death of being nailed to a cross, hung there for hours to suffocate and die. And above it all, he experienced the spiritual hell of being abandoned by God. This is the wrath of God against sin. This is the cup that we deserved. This is the cup that Jesus chose to drink. But why did he do it? Why did he do it? Let me circle back to where we started. What would you see if you could see God? What would he look like? John one says, no one's ever seen God. But then it finishes up and says this, but the one and only son who is himself God and in the closest relationship with the father, he has made God known. He has made him known. If you wanna know what God is like, look at Jesus. And this moment right here is the big reveal. It's the moment when the great I am lets us actually finally see his glory. And what do we see? a man choosing to die so that the guilty could go free. This is the face of God. Do you see in his eyes how much he loves you? Do you see on his face? Do you you see the depths that he would go to to rescue you, to free you? you? Do you see his resolve to destroy your sin without destroying you? Do you see that he is for you even when you are against him? Do you see how freely he gives himself away in love? This is who he has always been, the God who gives himself away. When the great I am was all there was, when all that existed was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, even then God was giving himself away. The Father giving himself to the Son, the Son giving himself to the Father and the Spirit. And there, before anything was made, before the foundation of the world, the great I am decided that he would create you so that he could share his love with you. But even before he decided to create you, he knew, he knew what would happen if he did. He knew what you would do. He knew that you would reject him. You would spurn his love, that you would become one of the sources of suffering and death in the world. He knew what would happen. And he knew that if he wanted to save you and bring you back, he knew the cost it would have to come on him, the cup that he would have to drink. He knew. And even knowing that, He still decided to make you and to love you and to save you no matter what the cost. This is the God who was and is and always will be the God who gives himself away. He didn't do it because he had to. He did it because he wanted to. He did it because he wanted you. Paul describes Jesus in Philippians 2. He says this, being in very nature God. And you can actually read that because he was in very nature God. This is what God does. He does not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's my question for you. Have you ever done that? Have you ever bowed your knee to Jesus and said, look, I'm done. I'm done trying to save myself I'm done trying to run my life. I'm done trying to be the one in charge. I need you to rescue me. I need you to be my savior. What you did on the cross, the sin that you paid for, that was my sin. The debt that you paid, that was my debt. You did what I could never do. Jesus, I need you to rescue me. Have you ever done that? I know there are some of you here. You've never done that. You've been thinking. You're curious. You're wondering about Jesus. That's why you're here, but you've never done that. There's some of you here who, you did that a long time ago. At some point in your life, you made a decision like that, but it it just didn't really affect anything. It didn't become a a, a part of you. It wasn't central. It it was was almost like, you know, I did that that one time. That was it. But you're here now. I I can think of no better day than Good Friday to say, Jesus, I'm yours. Rescue me. Save me. I need you. So if that's you, I I, want to help you do that. I want to give you a chance to respond to Jesus and say, save me. So I'm gonna pray a simple prayer. And as I do that, you can just pray along in your own heart, just kind of put it into your own words. And as I do that, say, Jesus, I want you to be my savior. Let's do that now. Prayer goes like this. It's very simple. I'm sorry, thank you, please. I'll start by saying, I'm sorry. Jesus, I'm sorry for all my sin. I am sorry for the way I've gone my way instead of your way. And every time I do that, every time I try to take control of my life and do my own thing, it only leads to a mess. I've done things that I know are wrong. I'm guilty. I'm sorry. Now say thank you to God. God, thank you. Jesus, thank you for not leaving me in my sin, for going to the cross to die for me. Thank you that you paid the debt I couldn't pay Thank you that when you died, you didn't stay dead, that you came out of the grave to bring new life to anyone who would trust in you. Thank you for doing that for me. Now say, please. Say, please, Jesus, forgive me. Make me clean. Please, Jesus, transform me, free me. Make me a new person. Jesus, please make me a part of your family. Welcome me in. And please give me a future a hope for all eternity that I would be with you. Jesus, please save me. God, I wanna pray for every person who just prayed that prayer, knowing that that's a a prayer of surrender that begins a life with you. And so I, I praise you for saving people even now. God, we pray for all of us that you would make all that real to us too the fact that you chose to love us. Jesus, that you didn't have to, but you still decided that you would give your life for us. let it sink in. Let us understand that even as we receive communion now, I pray that it will become more and more something that is at the center of who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.